Now let's turn again in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, which we've been reading over these past four weeks now. And once again, we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. I was watching a documentary during last week on the great uh, Dutch painter uh, Johannes Vermeer, uh, known to most of us by his famous painting that has come to be known as The Girl with the Pearl Earring. I quite often watch programs like that largely because I was hopeless at school at art And so I've been playing catch-up on art appreciation for most of my life. And I enjoy art historians who are not supercilious about the ordinary mortal who wants to understand a painting. And especially enjoy what they do, the way they will tell you the story of the painting, when all I see is the painting the way they will explain to you the way in which the story of the painting has been put together, and especially the way in which they may draw attention to details and to their significance. And I guess one of the reasons I enjoy that is because that's actually what we do when we study Scripture. We're looking at these great pictures that Scripture is painting for us, as for example in the gospel, and we we want to see the big picture, as people often say. But it's easy, isn't it, to forget that the, the reason the big picture is so marvelous is because it's got little details in it. And I thought for this our third time coming back to Matthew 1, 18 to 25, it might be time to look at some of the details. This is a passage that is full of details. But I want to 
focus our gaze on this amazing picture in which we are seeing the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. If you look at the picture, then Joseph seems to be front and central. But there are details in this picture that in many ways tell us a different story. And I want to uh, drop down, as it were, and point out three of these details that in a very remarkable way tell us what the real story of this passage is. The first of them is Joseph's angelic visitation. What I mean by calling this a detail will appear just in a minute. It's one of the characteristics of the nativity narratives in both Matthew and Luke that angels keep appearing. In Luke, an angel appears to Zechariah, husband of Elizabeth, appears then to Mary and tells Mary of the birth of the Lord Jesus, appears to the shepherds in the fields and urges them to go to Bethlehem to see what has happened there. And in Matthew's gospel, the appearance now of an angel to Joseph. And it's worth pressing the pause button at that point to underline that this is very unusual in the Bible for angels to appear. Um, a number of years ago, if you walked into a Christian bookshop, you discovered the books were now at the back of the shop and it was angels who were at the front of the shop. And it conveyed, I think, a sense, angels are always appearing. And I think people sometimes make the same mistake with angels that they make with miracles. The Bible's full of miracles. But actually, when you read the Bible from start to finish, you notice there are hardly any occasions in the Bible when the miraculous takes place. There seem to be centuries that pass without Scripture drawing attention to anything miraculous that God does. And the same is true with angels. Angels rarely appear. They rarely appear in the Gospels. They appeared to the Lord Jesus himself, as far as we know, in 33 years of his life, only on two occasions. And this should help us to understand that when an angel appears in the narrative, something very out of the ordinary is taking place. And if you survey those angelic appearances in Scripture, it's actually fairly obvious why it is that they appear on certain occasions. It's exactly the same reason why there seem to be miracles in, 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 in blocks, very occasionally. And it's always because either the kingdom of God is under fierce attack or will be soon or because some new advance is about to be made in the kingdom of God, and sometimes both. And it's very evident here in Matthew's narrative, actually in a way that's different, isn't it, from Luke's narrative, that the kingdom of God focused on Jesus Christ, breaking into the world 
in this supernatural way is about to come under the fiercest of attacks. And so in that sense, it shouldn't surprise us that the angels of the Lord who encamp around the one who fears him come to minister to God's people in this situation. And then, by and large, they disappear from the rest of the gospel narrative. The angel of the Lord appears here to Joseph because he is such a significant figure in the spiritual conflagration that is about to take place when Herod the Great will seek to destroy the Savior of the world within a matter of months of his birth. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. But you know, if you look at this from another point of view, the scriptures give us another insight into this. Do you remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12? He speaks about the fact that the prophets searched and inquired about whom they were speaking when they prophesied the coming of Christ and his sufferings for our salvation. And then Peter fascinatingly adds, these are things into which angels long to look. And interestingly, he uses the same verb John uses in John chapter 20 about Peter and John arriving at the garden tomb and John peering into the garden tomb to see what is there. And it gives us this marvelous picture, in a sense, one of the the few pictures we have in the Bible of, so what is it like to be an angel? What interests angels? And so on the one hand, this angelic appearance to Joseph is because the angels serve those who fear the Lord and defend the purposes of God's kingdom when it is about to come under attack. But also you can think about it from this point of view. God could do that in other ways. But he employs his angels, perhaps even better. He says to his angels, you desire to look into what these sinners experience what their Savior is about to do. You know, we sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But they sing something different. They sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, our God should die for them. And this is what Peter is talking about. And here is, here is this moment when, if one can imagine it, the Lord God Almighty has said from his throne to one angel, go and see and tell. But whatever you do, Don't wake him up. And the marvel of this, of course, is that if if you read through the Bible and ask yourself, so what are these angels? Then 
the great answer the Scriptures give to us is they're sons of God. Remember that in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, when the angels of the Lord appear in the, in the court of heaven, they're described as the sons of God. They're his family. Indeed, I think one of the things Scripture teaches us is that you and I as the children of God and the angels of God, the cherubim of God, the seraphim of God, we are like two branches of God's family living in different countries with, with, with different characteristics. But that family branch in glory has a huge interest in what is happening to and what the Savior is coming to do for the branch of the family that is on earth. And one day, as the Apostle Paul says, God will bring together under one family everything in heaven and his people on earth for the great family reunion in which among the many other things you might think you might experience in the glory, one of them might be an angel coming up to you and saying, so what is it like to be somebody for whom the Heavenly Father sent his only son to die for you on the cross? Because the angels love their king and want to serve him and so you see the significance of this little detail. God could have done it some other way. But he sends this angelic visitor to Joseph. And it teaches us in these different ways how much the angels love the Lord. How much the angels want him to look, to look into the privileges of salvation because of the sheer glory of the one who has come to save us, as in the passage from Philippians 2 that Crawford just read, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a reason for, as it were, staying in heaven, but he descended to the lowest parts of the earth. He made himself of no reputation. And you see, if angels desire to serve this king, and if angels worship him for what he has done for others, then at the end of the day, the, the message here is not really about Joseph, not about angels, but about Jesus. So there's Joseph's angelic visitation. But there's another detail here that if, if, if you saw a little detail like a shoe lying in a picture, you know, if you were lingering on the picture, you would, you would ask the question, what's that shoe doing there? You'd want, to, you'd want to be able to speak to the artist and say, what's the story of that shoe lying there? There must be a story here. And there's another element, another detail here that is, is just like that. It's Joseph's dream revelation. Because 
we've got four Gospels. We've got two Gospels that tell, as it were, the same story, but from two different perspectives, Matthew through Joseph's eyes and Luke through Mary's eyes. And, and we noticed, I think, before there's a difference in their angelic visitations. Mary's angelic visitation is before she even conceives Jesus. Joseph's angelic visitation that could equally have been before and saved him a lot of agony comes after the fact. But there's another obvious difference, isn't there? That Mary's angelic visitation comes during the day. Uh, but Joseph's angelic visitation comes during the night. said last time, I don't think it would uh, exercise an angel too much to cross town after he had visited Mary and then go and visit Joseph. And surely he was capable of, of meeting Joseph when, when he had done what, what a right-thinking man under the circumstances of this devastating blow probably would do. He'd get out of the village and go for a walk in the country or he'd get to his carpenter's bench and try and work his way through it. The angel surely could have found Joseph somewhere on his own to explain to him what had really happened. And yet he comes when Joseph is fast asleep. And when you turn to chapter 2, he comes to Joseph more than once when Joseph is fast asleep. So what is it that ties these occasions together? What's the meaning of this detail? Why does Gabriel Come to Mary, and it's obvious he's an angel, and he's bringing the word of the Lord. When the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in, in, in this kind of life of subconsciousness, in a dream. And I think probably the answer is because... Matthew's already given us this hint about the, the dis-ease that Joseph felt about what he was doing. He could see, what, he could see that if, if, if Mary had conceived a child, it certainly was not his child, and there was only one logical conclusion he could draw from that. It was another man's child. And he knew his Bible well enough to see what should be done under these circumstances, and he drew the logical conclusion divorce was the only step a righteous man could possibly take. And as we see later on in this passage, when God tells Joseph to do something, he does it instantaneously. I mean, when, when the angel in the dream tells him to, to uh, take Mary as his wife, it, it, you get the sense he almost did it that morning. He woke from sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took his wife. This is, and when the angel of the Lord comes again and tells him you've got to get out of here because Herod is after the child, he acts immediately when God speaks. In a dream. Through an angel. 
But when God speaks in his word to the situation he's in, this profoundly decisive man, he's considering it. And the only reason he's considering it is because he feels there's something not quite right. You know, sometimes people say that sheer mysticism. Uh, Professor John Murray has a marvelous passage in a, a little essay that he wrote on divine guidance when he says, you know, this is how the word of God sometimes comes to bear upon the children of God who have been drinking it in so that it's become part of them. That they find themselves in situations where instinctively, we might, he says, even call it as though they were having a hunch about something. Something you could never articulate what it is that you feel is not quite right here. And you know, sometimes looking back, you see that, don't you? And if somebody says, well, why didn't you say anything? Your only answer is to say, there was no, I couldn't even explain to myself why it was I felt that way. And Joseph was right. But you sense there's a difference between the, the rationality and the logic of what he has been thinking and this kind of inexplicable, under-the-surface sense. Remember how Pascal said, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. But he can't explain it. He can't justify it. He just know he, he has it and it's, it, it's, it's beyond his ability to put his finger on it and it seems to lie, as it were, within, within his subconscious. And I think that may be the reason why in that strange world of dreams, um, and for some of us it's a very strange world, God comes to him. It's as, though, it's as though God is saying, because this is something in Joseph's subconsciousness, I think the right way to deal with it is by getting him when he's under the level of consciousness. And later on, when he, he has these dream visitations again, you can sense he must already have been working this out and thinking, well, there's something, something not working here. What am I to do? but I don't know what to do. don't even know why I feel the way I do. And the Lord comes right down into that and uh, through this angel says, because you see, this is what lurks in his subconsciousness, this deep fear of the Lord. This passionate desire this dear man seems to have that he would always live under the smile of his heavenly father. That's what the Bible means when it speaks about the just or the righteous man, the tzaddik. That he always wants to live before the face of God and therefore he, he fears that he might make the wrong decision, take the wrong step. And so the angel of the Lord in the dream deals with that under-the-surface fear that's just part of his being. 
He's not going around with a mantra saying, I must be a man who fears the Lord. It's deep down in his being that he fears the Lord and it comes to expression in his life as it always does in those who fear the Lord this way. And the angel comes and says to him, Joseph, you don't need to fear to take Mary as your wife. You were right. Something didn't fit. And therefore, this is the most amazingly beautiful illustration of the kindness of the Lord to his servant, isn't it? I mean, must have felt, sometimes you will have felt this, something happens and what you say is, Lord, you didn't need to do this for me. You didn't need to deliver me in this way. You didn't need to defend me in this way. You didn't need to give me this. You are so kind. Now, why was that important? Well, we've seen this motif before. Dear friends, this, and we we don't take nearly enough account of this in the Christian tradition. This is the man to whom Jesus will look. As long as this man lives, probably, to see what it's like to live a life in the presence of God. Remember how Luke puts it? He grew, Jesus grew. Not only in stature, we would expect that. He grew in wisdom and in favor with God. As he went down to Nazareth and was obedient to his parents. So you see again, God is preparing this man in this this wonderful way. Do you remember that passage in Isaiah 50 where Isaiah has this amazing prophecy about the about the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and he he puts words into the servant's mouth. And the servant says, morning by morning you awaken me and I I listen to your voice and I seek to do your word. And, and, And that whole passage ends with a most amazing section in Isaiah 50. Who among you fears the Lord? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. That's, that's where Joseph was. God, what am I supposed to do here? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And Jesus, dear friends, Jesus is truly God. But he's also truly man. And so what this man Joseph breathes out, out of his experience of learning how you can trust the Lord, how great it is to live looking for his smile upon your life. This is what this man is breathing out day and daily as Jesus watches him in his workshop in Nazareth. And God has been preparing him to be the guardian, the adopting father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, yes, it's about Joseph, but it's about Joseph because it's about Jesus. And then there's a third little detail 
in the closing verse. And it lies in Joseph's great decision. Actually, he made several decisions. He made this decision when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And at the end of verse 25, he called his name Jesus, which was what the angel commanded him. He was decisively obedient. But then there's this little statement that has apparently nothing to do with what the angel of the Lord has said to him. That Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Very decisive, obviously very decisive decision. You ever wonder when you read these modern translations, why did they stick to Victorian language? You don't use this kind of language about the intimate relations between a a man and a woman. But this is simply a literal translation of what Matthew wrote because this is the way in which the Bible thinks about those relations. Right back to Genesis chapter 4, when Adam knew Eve, his wife, that this is a relationship of the most intimate, uh, mutual knowledge, personal transparency, and self-commitment. And I think we could say to Joseph, Some people would have said to Joseph if they had known. So what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And the answer would be absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Jesus would still have been conceived of a virgin, which is the big issue in the Bible. He he had a natural birth, didn't he? But not a natural conception. So there was nothing wrong with it. But you see, the thing that characterizes the tzaddik, the righteous man who who wants the face of God to smile upon him is, that's not really the question that he asks. Indeed, I think if I understand especially Paul's letter to the Corinthians, if that's the, the only question you ask, You're a spiritual infant. But it is surprising, isn't it? You know, sometimes in conversation, a Christian will say, but there's nothing wrong with it. But that's not the principle on which a Christian lives. Of course, if there is something wrong with it, it's instinctive, automatic, biblical to say that which is wrong. From that I refrained, but there was nothing wrong with this. So why did they refrain? And the answer, I think, is fairly obvious, isn't it? It's because they wanted to set their seal upon all that God was doing so that whatever came, whatever happened, the two of them would never be in any doubt that in this situation, God had done everything and was glorifying himself. Remember how Paul deals with people who say there's nothing wrong with it? If you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll notice there's a little expression that he keeps using. All things are lawful. 
And in our modern translations, it's usually in quotation marks because uh, commentators and translators assume this was a mantra among the Corinthians, as it sometimes is a mantra among Christians. And Paul says, you know, that's not the only issue. There are other issues. Who's it going to help? What others are going to be edified and built up by it? How is it going to bring glory to God? And you can see how true this was of this young couple. That's a decision they both obviously must have made. That for the sake of the glory of God, to help themselves, indeed we could even say to help the entire Christian church, they would give testimony to what God had done and his glory would be the single most important element in every decision they made. When I was watching this documentary on, 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 on Vermeer, um, the, the, the art experts got into discussing what they called the vanishing point. And uh, those of you who are, uh, who are art graduates or have studied art appreciation, uh, you, you would be able to explain to us what the vanishing point is, but I dare not take the risk. So here's the National Gallery's explanation of the vanishing point. The vanishing point in paintings forms part of a linear perspective scheme. You can forget about that for the moment. It is the point in fictive space which is supposed to appear the furthest from the viewer. But the position at which all receding parallel lines meet. That's really interesting. This this part of the picture that, that is supposed to be furthest from the viewer and yet it's It's the place where all receding parallel lines meet. I thought you could say that about this passage in Matthew, couldn't you? Um, There's an angel in the picture. There's Joseph in the picture. Uh, But in a way, Jesus isn't in the picture. But he is the vanishing point. He is the one who, from that point of view, is furthest away. But he's the one in whom all these parallel lines meet to say. And these, you notice, are the last words in the chapter. Call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Many years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in a very swanky hotel in Harvard Square uh, beside uh, the great Harvard University. It was swanky enough to have a bellboy operating the elevator for you. And when I checked in and got into the elevator, the bellboy turned to me and he pointed to a man I recognized who was just checking in, but he was in the crowd of people who were checking in for the conference. It was a conference of, of, of theological conference. And he pointed over to him, he said, he turned to me and said, that's Dr. Coop, isn't it? 
Now, some of you remember who Dr. Cook was. He was the Surgeon General of the United States of America. They said he was the only Surgeon General in history whom everybody recognized. He'd been an enormously distinguished pediatric surgeon, chief of pediatric surgery at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia when he was 30. He became internationally famous because uh, he was involved in, in the delicate surgery of, of separating conjoined twins. Uh, on one occasion, he was involved in that surgery and in the process, he, he, he separated twins who were, who, were, who were joined back to back and various organs they shared. Um, and, and surgeons said, it's absolutely impossible. And Dr. Coop, who happened to be a Presbyterian Christian, uh, he was a member of the congregation that James Montgomery Boyce was minister in, had, uh, had done this amazing surgery. And with this boy, he said, that's, that's Dr. Coop, isn't it? He saved me. Think of those conjoined twins that Dr. Coop had separated and given them life. And, you know, out of that amazing, amazing skill, they could have pointed to him and said, that's Dr. Coop, he saved me. And so you ask the boy, what did he save you from? Smoking, he said. <laughs> he saved me from smoking. And I thought, you know, in this sense, it's always true. Every Christian is a kind of picture of Jesus to other people. I thought, what a picture of Jesus this is. That some of us come to him just overwhelmed with our need and our sin that seems so great and so gross sometimes. We have sinned. And because his name is Jesus, he saves these people from their sins. And some of us have lived outwardly these respectable lives with these little bits and pieces. And we come to Jesus too. And we need him no less to be our savior. And I thought if this boy can point at Dr. Coop and say, he saved me. What a day it will be when all the ransomed church of God saved to sin no more points to Jesus and says, he saved me from my sins. And that's why he's called Jesus. It's a glorious, glorious reality. I love it, you know, when at Christmas time we sing once in Royal David's City, not so much because of the first verse, but because of the last verse. And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming blood, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him but in heaven, set at God's right hand on high. When like stars, his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. But you know, part of the message of this chapter to us is this. 
that you wouldn't be pointing to him on that day saying, he saved me, unless you begin to point to him in the present day and say, he saved me. Christ is in the details because Christ is everything. And when Christ is everything to us and saves us from our sins, he transforms us even in the details. Let's pray that he will. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. We thank you that every last detail of his coming is important to us, just as it is important to the sons of God, your angels who are in heaven and and inquire and ponder what must it be like to be saved from sin by our king and prince. And we pray that by your grace we may join them in pointing to him and calling him Jesus and naming him as our saviour and having his spirit transform our lives even in the details. We pray this in his name. Amen.